Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. In the words of William Shakespeare, security is the chief enemy of mortals, and in the state of Victoria, those words are ringing truer than ever. In late March, the Victorian government put private security firms in charge of hotel quarantine in Melbourne. Since then, there's been a long list of breaches by private security personnel, including sleeping with guests, allowing fresh air breaks, or, in the case of Perth, bursting into rooms frantically searching for the TV remote. But is the industry at large to blame, or have a few bad apples ruined the whole bunch? Joining us today for our weekly round is Brian DeCares, CEO of Australian Security Industry Association, the nation's peak industry body for the security sector, and Professor Emmanuel Josserand, a professor of management at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the director of the Centre for Business and Social Innovation. It was a decision obviously made at the height of concern about the spread of COVID-19 in Australia and yet for the state of Victoria, that choice to hand over the hotel quarantine to private security firms has been judged to be a critical error that the government used an industry with a long history of non-compliance with minimum standards for what is ultimately the most critical public safety job in the country at the moment. We'll start with you, Brian. To start off from From your perspective, was there always going to be disaster when the Victorian government opened up to allow private contractors to essentially take full control of their hotel quarantine? Context is important. You have to look at around the country, a number of jurisdictions, including, for example, New South Wales, have engaged private security to play an important role as part of their hotel quarantine program. So, for example, in New South Wales, there have been up to 750 security personnel each day working uh, in hotel quarantine uh, across Brisbane, at South Australia, WA. Private security personnel have been fronting up to work and doing a good job in terms of tasks they've been given. And you have to look across the whole country. Private security personnel have been doing an excellent job shopping centres, controlling queues at the centre links. I think the key challenge is there are obviously a, a couple of hotels where there have been uh, issues have arisen. I think what, what it comes back to is we fully support the inquiry that's been announced by the uh, Andrews government. The, the key issues to look at are the process that Victoria followed, why it took the particular approach it did. It didn't involve um, directly police, I understand, in the in the process. So the government made a decision which was uh, a little bit different to other jurisdictions. So uh, it'll be interesting to see as a result of the inquiry why that uh, transpired. But I think uh, it's probably a bit harsh to, to write off security that it was destined to be a failure. I think security performs a, a fundamental frontline role across a whole range of activities across Australia. And I think what we are keen to ensure is whilst we welcome the inquiry, we want to make sure it's not a it's not an exercising in scapegoating anybody. It's trying to understand what what took place in, in terms of the procurement of security in hotels in Victoria, what the governance structures were put in place to make sure that the contract delivery was in accordance with what was uh, set out in the contracts as a health issue, what, what mechanisms were put in place to make sure that the returning travellers were safe, but also the workers 
providing the security service were also safe because they're just as uh, as entitled to make sure they have a, a safe a working environment. So I think it's uh, uh, it's easy to to jump down and say this was destined to to fail. It clearly hasn't in other jurisdictions. So we, what we have to work out is what yeah what were the what were the lessons to be learned from from the uh, the Victorian experience and it, they did take a slightly different tack to other jurisdictions and that that will be hopefully something that will come out of the uh, inquiry. But in terms of an, as an industry, I mean, certainly as the peak body for the industry, we have been calling for probably I think it's nearly a, a quarter of a century for uniform and consistent national standards for the industry. Professor Josserin. There were concerns that were shared by uh, you know different different uh, actors in in the sector or stakeholders in in the sector. The Fair Work Ombudsman had raised issues, notably with uh, government procurement in the security industry. There there was an ongoing review by the Victorian government, which is really it's really unfortunate that that it happened. As you know, it was launched as as the decision was made. So there, there was a, a well known situation that was a systemic situation and, and issues, notably with the with the workforce in the industry. The lead the lead association, uh, the the industry group is is also uh, trying to to work on on the issue. But altogether, uh, it's unclear whether that you know when when change would have. Would have happened. I think the problem wasn't new, and it still wasn't addressed. So hopefully, you know, the current situation can bring that that change, and that would be positive uh, benefit. But it's unclear whether the reviews that were conducted would have led to a to a, a quick change in the absence of the the COVID situation. And you've said before in your research that any issues to arise can be greatly attributed to a raft of governance issues. You yourself cite the fact that the Victorian government mobilised security contracts within a 24-hour period, exempting them from the usual tender process. Uh, Their reasoning was due to the urgency of the situation. So in your opinion, is that a fair reason to forego a tendering process for what, as you've already said, is a critical public safety job? I think emergency situation can can justify uh, specific procedures. However, I'm not sure that uh, the tender the tender system that is in place would have would have led to a better outcome. So because we know that the issues are there, we know they haven't been corrected. We know that government in their procurement practice don't really role model the the best practices in terms of taking responsibility for for what is happening in the, in the supply chain. It's a bit as if they were saying, okay, well, well outsourcing this and we don't really monitor closely what's happening to where outsourced it. So I don't think that a stricter tendering process would have really changed the outcome. Uh, I think the issue was systemic was, you know, was there despite other other situation when, when when a tender was applied. So the the tendering mechanism itself is probably not the main the main issue there. From an industry point of view, we want to make sure whatever procurement process, you want to make sure it's as transparent as is possible. Certainly this was, uh, there were extenuating circumstances in this in this instance, but my understanding is they did, there is a whole of government panel of pre-approved suppliers, which uh, government uses from time to time as, as the need arises. But yeah, the key thing is that there needs to be certainly transparency in the whole process. So, uh, and it needs to follow best practice in terms of, yeah, making sure that, you know, appropriate risk assessments are conducted appropriate governance structures are put in place to manage contracts. So again, that hopefully will be something that the inquiry will 
we'll be able to drill down into as to why the government took the approach it took and what are the lessons to be learned for the future. Other jurisdictions were able to get their programs up and running in a very uh, rapid time as well. So everybody had to move pretty quickly. So it's uh, it's ultimately a question that the uh, the Victorian government will have to answer because it was their decision to do what they did. From an industry point of view, certainly transparency is probably the is the most important thing. You want to make sure that everyone has a, a fair shot at, at tendering for work. And if there's a set process, then you need to follow what the procedure is. What I gather from that is that the three security firms who were contracted to undertake this probably would have been awarded a tender otherwise. Is that a, a fair assumption to make? It would have been very likely because they are big companies and they, as such, have the capability to bring together big groups of guards quickly. We know that MSS and Wilson were already pre-approved for providing a fast-track service, so the tender process would have been very different for them. In the case of Unified, it would be different because it wasn't pre-approved. But uh, but it's really the the fact that the tender in itself, or even the contract uh, that is associated with the delegation of of service is not a guarantee that that everything was unf- will unfold according to to best practices and i think that's where the issue is was given an opportunity to to consult the contract well there is a even if it's not very detailed there is a description of some of the protocols there is a description of uh, of rules that just haven't been respected uh, the contract states that any subcontracting should be approved by the the client in, in that case the, the Victorian government but that's not a guarantee that uh, everything will be implemented in a way that that will uh, preserve preserve the safety uh, of of our community in such a delicate and complex service. According to the Australian Security Industry Association, in March 2020, there were more than 11,000 security businesses in Australia with more than 147,000 individual security licence holders. Now, the Fair Work Ombudsman in years gone by has identified a lack of awareness and education regarding employer obligations and employee entitlements. Now, it doesn't take an enormous amount of capital to start a business, and as a result, a large number of security businesses compete for contracts and there is obviously strong competition on labour costs as well. So it seems from the outside in to be a perfect recipe for malpractice. You've obviously said that it's been a a quarter century since any sort of great upheaval in the industry. In 2011, the Fair Work Ombudsman completed audits of 296 employers in a national campaign targeting the security industry and found 154 of them, 52%, were in breach of workplace laws. So has much changed in the industry since then or are the same issues that we're now seeing come to the forefront have they been systemic for a longer time there's still a lot of concern about about the issues that were raised by the fair work ombudsman in, in in 2011 around underpayment of wages uh, sham contract contracting uh, health and safety issues concern for the safety of the of the community which is part of the of all these issues are still there in uh, in the objective of the review by uh, the Victorian government. And we have anecdotal evidence that there are still uh, a lot of similar breaches that are happening now. Now, what I can't tell you is, is you know, the exact incidence of these, of these breaches. However, it seems that on a large scale program, 
managed by some of the biggest companies of the sector as, as the COVID situation, there has been issues with subcontracting uh, and, and workforce issues associated with subcontracting. The issue of uh, sham contracting, the use and abuse of uh, ABN holders for probably about 20 years. We, we've instigated investigations with the Fair Work Ombudsman. Uh, so the issues have been highlighted. We've, we've highlighted the need for transparency and procurement practices, not with just with government, but with, with uh, the corporate sector as well. You know, we put out guidelines to users of security to say what, you know, if you take into account all the, the costs of running a, an operating a, or employing a security officer, so what the cost is per hour and it's in excess of $41 an hour to actually do all the all the things that an employer should do. So some of the changes that we've advocated for in terms of a uh, shift in professional standards is, has been on the public record for some time. And that does include the eligibility requirements for businesses that we believe should be able to, uh, to meet certain criteria to, to be able to operate in the industry, as well as individuals. Uh, eligibility requirements to basically not necessarily make it harder, but just to raise the the level of uh, of ability and also the the skill sets required to to enter the industry, but unfortunately the yeah the the willingness for government it was we had some traction back in two thousand and eight when the Council of Australian Governments made a commitment to progress movement towards uh, uniform and consistent national standards, but unfortunately that uh, fell by the wayside. You're listening to Think Business Futures on 107.3 FM. Joining us today, Brian DeCares and Professor Emmanuel Josserand. Once again, subcontractors, they're employing workers with no security experience or at least very little on lower wages and security guards are receiving when they're employed through the primary contractor. Now, the three major contract holders in Victoria are, as you've mentioned earlier, MSS Security, Wilson Security and Unified Security. But subcontracting is a particular issue that you've identified multiple times throughout our conversation already. So what exactly is subcontracting and sham contracting in the security industry? And how has it become so particularly noticeable during hotel quarantine? Yeah, so that that seems to be really a common common practice. As you indicated before, uh, we we know that there is, you know, around 11,000 businesses in that industry. And obviously, they they don't have the same size. Some of them are really tiny. Um, there's low barrier to to entry, and actually, another lot of scrutiny on their operations. So, so where's the way big contracts like this are put together, and actually even smaller contracts, but but definitely for the big ones, is that you have the three the three big companies who have been who have been allocated the the contract. In that case, that was MSS Wilson Unified. So, the state government. Uh, uh, outsource this service from these three companies. Now, these three companies typically will use subcontractors. Uh, we know, for instance, that Unified use five subcontractors to uh, to to uh, contribute to providing enough guards. The subcontractors, and there's been reports coming in already, that these subcontractors can further subcontract. So you land on the service relying on sometimes very small companies with very little procedures and and protocols um, uh, working embedded in this in this uh, in in this service and each time you subcontract you lose a bit a bit of control you lose a bit of monitoring on on what's happening uh, now the sham contracting is a different story it's the case and for individual guards um, 
in in the case of of sham contracting, they are employed not as employee, but they are contracted as contractors. So that means that they don't have to be paid uh, the the rate that is uh, that is uh, uh, the one um, agreed on in the in the award. Uh, they don't have you know all the entitlements that come with with an employment contract, and so you can cut their their hourly. Uh, wage, you can, you know, there's no obligation for superannuation. So basically, that an hourly rate, but none of the of the of the obligation that are linked to an employment contract. According to the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, security guards allege that they were only provided five minutes of training and infection control procedures before being deployed, and that they were made to sign documentation saying they understood infection control procedures. Now, to the untrained eye, a lack of proper training to cash in on a lucrative government contract seems to reflect in many ways the Rudd government's 2010 home insulation program, which was obviously beset by controversy when four of the workers passed away in separate incidents linked to the program. From your perspective, are government contracts, when conceived under the pressure of the GFC for Rudd and the pandemic for the Andrews government, a perfect opportunity for rorting the system? The hotel quarantine uh, program was a significant, obviously, health health issue. Any worker uh, working in those environments should uh, receive appropriate induction uh, into the site, appropriate training to make sure they're aware of of the potential risks that they are being placed at. Again, that's, that'll be up to the inquiry to find out what level of training, whether it was appropriate, whether it was in accordance with what was specified in the contractual arrangement by government. Again, it's all these things need to be conducted. Whether you're rushing it or not rushing it, you still have to do things in a in an ordered way with appropriate governance, with appropriate risk mitigation strategies in place. Otherwise, you have potential for things to happen that shouldn't happen. So again, it comes back to whatever was in that original contractual arrangement. Um, in other jurisdictions, my understanding is there's there was ongoing checking and checking and, and reviewing of the arrangements that had been put in place to make sure that they were appropriate. And if they needed changing, they were changed. So if, if the personnel needed further training because uh, there were different risks that they were unforeseen risks that they were exposed to, then uh, further training was required. So I think it comes back to how you set up the project and how you continue to manage the project because Again, everybody, regardless of where you are, what your role is, you're you're entitled to a safe a safe workplace, um, and having access to the appropriate equipment to perform your job in a safe manner. So, um, I think uh, expediency. It doesn't mean you, you have to overlook safety. Uh, you can still do all of those, um, but you should constantly review it to make sure that you have not, you know, if if you've discovered there's just different and better ways of doing things. You have to evolve the process. In the 2011 inquest into the home insulation program, Queensland coroner Michael Barnes stated, because a major focus of this program was the stimulation of the economy to counter the effects of the global financial crisis, it needed to proceed far more quickly than that, but not at the cost of human life. Now, things have moved too quickly with too little regulation and lives have once again been lost a decade later, could the Victorian inquest potentially reach the same conclusion? I think that we'll find yes that uh, that time was 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 an element. But uh, 
what would will be interesting in the outcome is is if there is a, a real comparison between what happened in the different states where the mix of um, personnel was was different and and in the remediation um, strategy that that the Victorian government has put in place, uh, there is reliance now on prison personnel. Uh, rather than only uh, the security industry. Uh, in New South Wales, we, we had a mix of the police force, the, arm, the armed force, and the security industry. Well, the police force and the armed force are well-trained. They are ongoing. Uh, they are an ongoing workforce. They take safety uh, uh, very, very seriously. You know, well-trained in adapting to complex situations, in applying a protocol, and and again taking this protocol seriously as as soon as they step in it's a bit different if you're in a situation where security guards are just he- here to you know support and, and help and if you want being the small hands in the, in the delivery of the, the of the service uh, but people in charge are, are people who are, are better trained to to do that uh, any situation where there's very little monitor monitoring and and uh, framing of of what they are doing. And do you find yourself in in a unique position as an industry's peak body asking for greater public scrutiny? Do you ever think that that's particularly interesting that you yourself acknowledge the fact that it's it's subcontracting and sham contracting in the security industry that in many ways have given it the reputation that it currently has, particularly regarding the hotel quarantine debacle? Do you think that you're in a unique position as an industry body begging the government to to do more to flush out some of the some of the bad presences in your industry. I would say it's probably frustrating. It's it's not a new message. We we get tired of hearing ourselves, but we have been advocating this for decades. So it is frustrating, but uh, we we believe it's a it's an important industry. It's important that it's operated professionally, and it's important that people do things the right way. So where people have used and abused, for example, individual ABN holders, which again is an issue that we've raised with government in Victoria for close to a decade. We get frustrated, but again, we will keep we will keep going uh, until hopefully we get to the outcome we want, which is you know a, a more professionally regulated industry, better enforcement. Um, because at the end of the day, we want to make sure they offer a, a service that is professional and is um, is of the high standard. And it's uh, I think we're. On the whole, the industry does that, but there are pockets where you have practices of, of as, as you say, uh, sham subcontracting and the misuse of independent contractors, which which what that does is drives prices down to the lowest common denominator, which uh, makes it very difficult for reputable companies to compete. The Herald and the Age revealed last Friday revelations about a procurement process for the Victorian government. There were leaked emails from senior figures in the Department of Jobs, Victorian Department of Jobs, and it brings to question whether Victoria put potentially too much emphasis on finding jobs for marginalised Victorians who had obviously been affected by the COVID lockdown without ensuring that those very same people had the adequate training to keep the virus locked in its hotel. Now, we've been discussing it over the last half hour of conversation. It has arisen every few minutes, it seems. But it's interesting to consider that economic question being given so much priority. And in early April, actually, the Victorian government published a media release 
referring to 450 jobs being created in the hotel quarantine program. So they included transport operations, security and cleaning. Now, obviously, if you're advertising jobs in hotel quarantine, it's clear that the idea was to get people back into work. So is there a clear sign that the quarantine was arguably designed to kill two birds with one stone in Victoria. It was to keep infected travellers locked in and at the same time keep the most vulnerable Victorians in work. It seems like a very dangerous balance to strike. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and, and it'd be interesting to see what the the, the inquest reveals on, on how much it, uh, it influenced the the decision uh, and and the decision that were made on who was used for for these jobs. Uh, I think that that will be an important aspect. Uh, what is very clear is that it was a big economic miscalculation. Like the job created <laughs> really don't compensate the the catastrophic uh, impact on the economy. That's for sure. It was 4th century BC philosopher Epicurus who put it well when he said that it is possible to provide security against all other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. And for those stuck in quarantine in Victoria, that same security that was given the Epicurean treatment over 2,000 years ago has been found in the present day to lack regulation, be the lucky recipient of a rushed government contract and, most importantly, has become COVID-19's fifth column with a deadly second wave of infections the result. As we've heard today, the industry itself has been calling for regulation for what seems like eons, and with Victoria's judicial inquiry due to publish their findings by September 25th, governments, contractors and everyone in between will be struggling to offload the political hot potato of the month. Once again, thanks very much for listening to Think Business Futures. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening from Victoria, hang in there. And to everyone else, stay safe. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week.